Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to share the conversation I had with James Costa. Uh, Jim is an evolutionary biologist, and demonologist, and also a Darwin and Wallace scholar. He's a professor of biology at uh, Western Carolina University. He's also the executive director at Highlands Biological Station. Um, he is a recipient of many awards, uh, such as the Alfred Russell Wallace uh, Medal. He's a trustee of the Charles Darwin Trust and has had various fellowships. He's the author of numerous books, um, including the most recent one, Radical by Nature, The Revolutionary Life of Alfred Russell Wallace. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. It's a fabulous book. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, as we mentioned in the conversation, a lot of people don't know uh, that much about Wallace. Some people might be familiar with his name, but he kind of has lived in the shadow of Darwin just because they were contemporaries. And and a lot of people know, obviously, Darwin for evolution, natural selection, sexual selection. But Wallace is an a, a, a unsung hero in many ways, and he is uh, very, very important, uh, at least in the history of biology, and I, th- I would say even generally. Um, and so uh, Jim's new book, uh, Biography on Wallace, is, uh, is absolutely fabulous. We talk about the radical and revolutionary nature of Wallace, especially for his time, and that's a kind of running theme throughout the conversation, which is, which is really nice. We talk about the humble beginnings and inquisitiveness about uh, Wallace when he was a child and where he lived and how he was always in a natural environment. We talk about his apprenticeship that he had, where he learned surveying and map making. We talk about some of his major trips, his first major trip uh, to the Amazon and the impact that had on his thinking. Some of his uh, interactions with various indigenous groups in the Amazon and how he has a very uh, big uh, bent for humanism, uh, which we talk about also throughout the conversation. We talk about how he ended up in Asia for about eight years and his time there, various uh, ideas that he was able to, to, to kind of promote and the kind of process of natural selection. He doesn't call it that, but he basically describes the same process. We talk about Darwin and Wallace uh, and their correspondence and friendship and Kind of the the question that some people discuss about this is, you know, who really got to it first and, you know, who deserves the credit and, you know, should Wallace have had more credit and things like that. Um, really, really uh, insightful part of the conversation. I really enjoyed this part of the conversation just because of how balanced Jim is. He gives Darwin his credit. He gives Wallace his credit. And there's not really opposition there, even though people try to make, I think, that story. Um, so it's, it's, it's wonderful bit there. We talk about Wallace and his spiritualism, uh, what that was about. We talk about Wallace and his social justice emphasis, uh, in the, in the truest sense of the word and, and kind of how he was, a, you know, obviously imperfect like anyone is, but really ahead of his time, um, for, for many things. And so it's, uh, uh wonderful to kind of get that, uh, framing of, of Wallace as well and how that inf- involves and influences his thinking and his ideas as well. And, and then finally, we talked about the legacy of Wallace and how we cannot forget him and how he does have his rightful place um, in philosophy of science, in, in biological history, etc. Um, I absolutely love this conversation. 
Uh, it's over two hours and it felt super fast in all the best ways. It was, it was just a delight to talk with Jim. He's obviously uh, really brilliant. He's very kind. And, um, he, <laughs> it seems like he knows everything about Wallace of some sorts. And he's, uh, he's, he was just a real big delight to, to have on. And I was really grateful to have this uh, conversation as always, you can find, uh, this conversation and all other conversations, uh, my Substack, Convergent Dialogues at Substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. So subscribe, uh, follow, and uh, share widely with, uh, with folks that you might think are interested in uh, these conversations. And uh, now I bring you James Costa. I am here with James Costa. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very excited to, to have you on and to talk with you about your new book. Sure, great, great pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so we'll we'll, uh, we'll get all into the book. The book is uh, "Radical by Nature: The Revolutionary Life of Alfred Russell Wallace." Uh, it's out everywhere. This is through the wonderful Princeton uh, University Press. Um, so that we're going to talk all about it. But before we do, just kind of give folks a uh, snapshot of who you are, uh, what your background's in, uh, professionally. Uh, what you currently do and uh, what you're currently up to. Sure, sure. Um, well, um, I mean, I am um, a, a professor of biology at Western Carolina University and director of the university's Highlands Biological Station, which is a pretty neat field station here in the Southern Appalachians um, established in 1927, so about 96 years ago now. Um, and it's the kind of environment that I, I, I most enjoy, you know, because you're engaging with a broad spectrum of people, you know, um, the local community and lifelong learners and the scientific community and students. And it's exactly the kind of place that I, I thrive in. So very much an academic, um, trained as an entomologist um, in population genetics, behavior, um, social evolution was really a, a special interest of mine. Um and uh, for many years, I've, I've also had a keen interest in uh, history of evolutionary thinking. And um, so slowly but surely over the years, I, I found myself drawn in <laughs> increasingly down that, that path and exploring really for, maybe through the lens of an educator thinking about how best to help my students and others come to an understanding of um, the nature of, of, of evolutionary biology, how we figure things out, you know, in science and in evolutionary biology. And that led me to um, studies of Charles Darwin, Alfred Russell Wallace, kind of trying to understand them as, as people and their working method and, and um, really try to better understand their life and times so that I can better help my students today and really others, anybody who's interested, just kind of connect with 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 them and their and their science because of course you know i i feel that evolutionary biology is is absolutely foundational right to modern biology and and uh, for me it's always been important to, to help um students and others really understand where these ideas come from yeah no, that's that's wonderful that's that's really great to hear the um your your book i know you've written a few books before this but uh this one radical by nature was as i was telling you before we started uh, really spectacular. I mean, I found it to be uh, super informative, obviously, but really kind of um, has a nice fluidity to it, a nice pace. Um, I really, really enjoyed uh, how you talked about Wallace. It, it felt not, not just readable, but it felt relatable. Like I kind of really understood 
uh, understood the man, but understood you know, kind of what made him tick in mm. much of his you know, professional life and personal life. And so um, it's really, really fabulous and really, really fabulous. I'm so I'm so pleased to hear that it it, it was really a goal of mine um, to to try to help readers like understand Wallace in this case as a person, yeah. you know, as a, uh, as a very curious you know guy, but also as uh, in his context of his family, his friends, his time, um, and so I purposely kind of tried to write this in what I thought of as a rather conversational um, mm-hmm. style. So, you know, as if we could just sort of sit down and, and you know, just kind of over a beer or something, kind of, you know, just kind of give the reader a, a sense of, of this remarkable uh, individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, some some people, uh, some listeners might be familiar with, uh, with uh, Russell Wallace. Some, uh, I think a lot of people may not, or they might know the name or whatever, but so, so pretty much everybody or most people uh, know who Charles Darwin is and his, mm. shall we say, discovery uh, of uh, evolution and, and natural selection and sexual selection and all those things. Mm. Um, but I think there are a handful of people that would probably say, who, who's, uh, mm. who's uh, Alfred Russell Wallace? Who, who is this guy? And, and so I guess the kind of as a general um, uh, kind of uh, theme here to start, uh, how is he important to the story of not only evolution but biology generally at the time as a as a um uh contemporary of Darwin and then afterwards he lived a bit longer than Darwin and um and uh, yeah as the book uh, as the title says you know radical and revolutionary so uh so yeah kind of <laughs> <laughs> where does he sit with uh you know as a contemporary in Darwin's time and then uh what makes him so uh, radical and revolutionary mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, yeah, good, good, good questions. Um, you know, yeah, certainly much less uh, well known um, compared to Darwin, and that's exactly what we need to remedy. You know, because <laughs> he's, you know, these are both remarkable individuals. You know, but Alfred Russell Wallace um, is maybe, you know. Remarkable in ways that that Darwin is not. You know, he both of them are part of a generation of explorer naturalists. This is kind of the heyday of, um, especially kind of European, you know, or um, uh, Anglo-American kind of uh, exploration. Not exclusively, but 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 largely, um, uh, scientifically speaking, of the of the natural world. Um, and so there's a whole generation really inspired by the likes of um, 18th century explorers like Alexander von Humboldt. But Darwin, of course, you know, who needs no introduction, um, achieved great fame through his you know, profound insights into, into this process that we know is natural selection um, and evolution. Um, but, but Alfred Russell Wallace, um, too, independently came to this insight. And, and I say that he's maybe more remarkable in in, in many ways um, that, than Darwin because Wallace didn't enjoy many of the advantages that that Darwin enjoyed. You know, Darwin, um, you know, amazing guy. You know, but grew up in a rather um, a privileged household. You know, really prosperous family. Had um, best education. He had opportunities to travel the world. You know. Um, uh, financed, you know, by by his dad, and and certainly, you know, to very good effect. Right, did did amazing things. But I, I've always been struck by by Wallace as someone who was um, largely an autodidact, who left school when he was very young, whose family was 
relatively impoverished, really struggled, you know, um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's self-taught and yet he he's excited by these same scientific ideas as Darwin and others of their generation. But he has the audacity to to sort of think, well, you know, I, I could I could do this. I could explore the, these questions, you know, and it just seems so unlikely, you know, for somebody like him, given his background, his lack of of funds, lack of social connection, lack of formal education, lack of connection with, you know, great institutions like museums or universities that he could actually pull this off, you know. So here we have an individual who, you know, just really astoundingly, you know, manages to find a way, you know, um, initially with a kindred spirit, you know, um, Henry Bates, to travel to Amazonia first, later to Southeast Asia, you know, the Ind Indonesian archipelago, um, exploring, collecting, funding his explorations through collections, but really the object being to, to really, you know, explore these profound questions like the, the nature of species and varieties, the origin of species, and, um, and in the process encountering uh, exotic peoples and 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 all manner of uh, of flora and fauna, and uh, you know just you know really truly too making the most of his opportunity, and very very creatively you know connecting these dots in interesting ways, having these penetrating insights in the field, and writing these just you know really luminous papers you know from the field. Um, for for me, you know, just his achievements, given his disadvantages to begin with, make him really stand out. Um, but then, you know, this is not just a one off, right? His whole subsequent life, you know, is really in itself a kind of continuation of this epic um, exploration um of mind, if you, if you will, where he he continues on these, you know, um, these uh, avenues of exploration and figuring things out, even when back home, um, but also then has these, you know, deep seated interests in social justice mm -hmm. uh, in various ways and wanting to pursue those. So in so many ways, he's he's so very, very different from Darwin. The two are, of course, friends, um, friends, friends and colleagues. Um, but really very, very different. And it's it's a pity that Wallace does, doesn't get, you know, nearly the uh, credit that he deserves for his accomplishments, which even had he made from a position of privilege would be wonderful. But given that he made them coming from such a disadvantaged background, he's all the more remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very nicely uh, said. I believe the the book came out this year because of the bicentennial of his birth. Am I right on this? Yes, uh, th this year is the two hundredth um, mm -hmm. anniversary of his birth. Um, mm -hmm. That the, the actual birth date was back in January, January eighth, mm -hmm. um, eighteen twenty three, is when he was mm -hmm. was born. And yes, I um, and I would have dearly loved to have had this actually out right in time for his for his birthday celebration. Um, but you know the. Uh, you know, it, it's a big life, and there was much to tell. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, get this completed. He, you know, surprising. I mean, he. I mean, a lot of people didn't live into their nineties, and you know, in uh, that were born in eighteen twenty three. So, the fact that he lived to the the twentieth uh, century is 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 remarkable. I mean, it's, it's a long, long, long life. So, <clears throat> let's um, we can we can kind of give some of the the broad brushstrokes here of kind of the the early beginnings. So. 
So mm. let me make sure I get this right. So he's he's British, but he's born in Wales and lives there for the first couple years as a child. Uh, and you talk about this in the book about how some of the early beginnings of where he lived. So you're talking about how he he didn't come from a lot of privilege and he wasn't living in some big fancy house and you know had all these things. You know he he really was a kind of everyman of sorts. And um, but what was it? I guess where he was living. Uh, mm. early years, you know, first couple years of life uh, as a kid uh, mm. that sparked his interest just in the, the natural world around him, his environment, where he lived, you know, talk about maybe some of those um, early roots, no pun intended, but some of those early mm. roots for, for things uh, uh, for him being a, uh, a naturalist mm. and, and uh, just an observer of many things. Yeah. Um, well, you know, his, his earliest childhood was spent in in South Wales. Um, and then the family was um, English. His his father trained, I think, as a barrister, as a lawyer. Never really practiced. He had lots and lots of interests. You know, literary tastes. Um, you know, he, um, he, he by all accounts he was. You know, he, he didn't have much business acumen. You know, so he sort of managed to sort of just lose money. You know, left and right and family was sort of, you know, increasingly, you know, more and more impoverished. And I think the way Wallace described it, maybe in his autobiography, was that the, the family had moved to South Wales because the living was as cheap as possible, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, but he, and he, he lived there for just the first five years of his life in, in um, the beautiful little town of Usk. And I, and actually his birthplace, I think is, is pretty evocative in that he was born. It's a very interesting landscape. It's, um, sort of for geology nerds, it's kind of cool to sort of read the landscape and read history and landforms. Mm-hmm. And here we have a kind of um, geological formation that results in um, a very, very steep-sided bank immediately behind the house. And in some of Wallace's earliest memories, I mean, he there's a river immediately in front, there's a steep bank right in back, there are fossils to be found. And, um, you know, but he, he is the eighth of, of nine children, he has um, a couple of o- older brothers, and he has memories of um, of, of uh, sort of you know exploits, exploration as little kids will do, you know, with uh, with with their siblings. Um, but I guess it's fair to say that his taste for natural history and really kind of understanding it as sort of an interesting thing to explore would have come a bit later. You know, the family relocated to the town of Hartford, which was his m- mother's hometown in in uh, England mm-hmm. and uh, and it was there that he had um his only formal education um but also you know again landscape is very very evocative you know um rich memories of uh, you reading his autobiography of of exploring kind of landscape um some botanizing you know the mis- mysterious fossils like belemnites you know those sorts of things um various geological formations um, but they they were, I think, formative in ways that they can be formative for all of us, in ways that we can't describe, um, but that might leave us with a certain sense of wonder or a taste, you know, for nature, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, it kind of reminds me of a, of, a, of a time that, you know, I, I don't want to put um, any type of uh, hierarchy here of which is, you know, more important or not, but 
you know, even when I was younger, you know, many kids played outside and, you know, digging around in the dirt. And I'm sure there's still people around the world that still do that. But, you know, but looking at, you know, trees and plants and birds and just having this like curiosity about the world around you. When I when I was reading, uh, you know, kind of the, the the first you know chapter or two about his early life, I really got that sense that he had this kind of mm, I don't want to say this natural wonder for the world mm. around him, right? Mm. Almost like you know, literally his his backyard is his playground, right? There's so many things to pick up and to turn over and to think about and explore, and and I think there's something about temperament there, but I think also. Um, you know, the environment that he's in. He didn't live in like the big city, which would be, I guess, maybe London or something. Like he lived in a place that was a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, exposed to nature and exposed to, you know, this embankment, things like that. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a thing where that's kind of rooted in much the same way as mm-hmm. if, you know, you know, folks that, you know, grow up in, in rural areas are going to have a different outlook on life on, or appreciation for things or curiosity than, you know, folks that maybe grew up in the city. And that's not to to kind of, you know, say one's better than mm. the other. But I think it's interesting to show how it kind of uh, started there and just continued. Um, mm. you, you talk about him moving to the big city and to London as a, as, a, as a teenager, being exposed to different ideas. But it's really mm. what was interesting was he does this six-year apprenticeship for surveying and map making. Um, and mm. uh, thinking about this, you know, as I was putting this together, I was like, you know, that, you know, we never know, right. When we're, when we're young and we're doing something and you know, where our life's going to take us. And we never know the things we're doing when we're young, how we're going to use it later in life or how it'll be mm. instrumental. And I, and I have to imagine that having a type of skill set or trying to develop a, a kind of, apprenticeship kind of way of of doing surveying land and to doing map making had to have been super instrumental for later observations and discoveries he had as a naturalist and a scientist could you i guess just describe for us um and i want to i don't want to state something that's not there but you know just how mm-hmm. important was this time of learning these mm-hmm. types of skills that um you know really mm-hmm. helped him later in his life as a as a naturalist and scientist Mm, yeah, 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 uh, and I would I would agree with you. I mean, I think that that those skills did help him in more ways than one. You know, so he, um, you know, as a teenager, as you mentioned, you know, he um, had to leave school again. Family finances didn't improve; <laughs> they kept getting worse. You know, and he's um, finally kind of compelled to to leave school and help. You know, kind of support himself and and support the family and. Um, his eldest brother is a professional surveyor. Um, his um, the next oldest brother is an apprentice uh, builder in in London, and he's first sent to kind of spend time with with him, and and he kind of boards with him, and he's and he's maybe he's tagging along and and, and helping out a, a little bit, and you know he's you know learning a little bit about 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 that trade, and um, and a little bit later, um, you know, a few years later. Tragically, you know, his eldest brother, William, died. And, um, you know, this was the surveyor. And, uh, you know, Wallace went with his other brother, John, to kind of um, pick up the pieces, kind of take over the the, the the business. But prior to that, he did have some experience 
um, with uh, apprenticing as a surveyor. There was one year when uh, William had to lay him off that, you know, the, this business was was very slow and he worked for that one year as a school teacher. Um, and so, you know, we had this varied experiences. There was a stint with a with a watchmaker, a clockmaker. Um, there was, you know, so between building, um, the, the, the watchmaking, the, the surveying. Um, I think that to kind of think about his later interests and how surveying may have um, fed into that or benefited him in some way. One way that it did that, I think, surely was the opportunity to spend uh, long days outside in the field, you know, and really develop an eye, you know, as for for a trained surveyor um, to be able to, first of all, you know, with orienteering, kind of navigating your way, um, map making is a very precise kind of this art as well as science, mm -hmm. uh, but make, but, but being out there immersed in nature, landforms, geological formations, the flora, the fauna. Um, I think that was something Wallace really reveled in, you know, these opportunities. He was just, you know, one of the working men out there, you know, they would take their lunch under the shade of a, of, of some, you know, trees or, or shrubs. And it's like long days in the, in the field and they would board um, or they would just, you know, stay in, in remote little um uh, country inns, you know, here and there, um, because as they're they're making their way, doing various projects, they're constantly kind of on the move. You know, this is the uh, the the time of um, you know great boom in in railways and canal building and uh, the the enclosure laws, which of course were rather controversial in Britain at the time. Um, this was where common land was being. Uh, enclosed and surveyed so that the um, the tithes that would be paid, say, to the church um, would be converted from um, sort of payment in in kind, like produce and that sort of thing, to, pay, to payment in cash. And in order to do that, there were precise calculations based on the acreage of um, of land. And, and so um, very careful surveys needed to be done. And so Wallace, um, you know, under his eldest brother is kind of... Um, uh, working to help do, uh, you know, um, map uh, parishes and and uh, uh, help with the enclosure movement. Um, later, he, after uh, William's unfortunate demise, he picks that up and um, he has a partner and 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 off they go. And he's he's continuing this this same work. Um, all of that work, I think, thinking about navigating, thinking about careful. Not just map reading, but even be able being able to draft maps. You know, careful observation of landscape, and uh, th those were certainly factored into his successes in the field as an explorer and collector later. Um, and even in a very literal way, you know, when when Wallace traveled to places like the you know the the Rio Negro River. Um, he didn't simply just sort of travel there. He surveyed as he went. He actually drafted very detailed maps of, of these places that he visited. In the case of the Amazon and the Rio Negro and Rio Huapes in South America, uh, these maps were actually published and were um, considered to be, you know, perhaps the most accurate maps until well into the, the, the 20th century, um, when more modern technology kind of superseded their, their technology. Um, so, yeah, I think that that these were skills that were really beneficial, um, maybe in a literal sense, but also just how they gave him um, a certain acumen with um, 
a scientific instrumentation um, that extended to parallel interests like astronomy, for example, and his fascination with with telescopes and those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 again, it's this kind of life of you know maybe seeing some of the financial struggles with his family and saying, well. You know, maybe that's not maybe that's not for me. Maybe what I can do is, you know, kind of these things that I have this exploration of this this wonder, and mm. and not just only using that as like a escapism thing, but really trying to concretely um, uh, make sure that he's documenting many of the things that he's doing and learning how to do that. I think is is interesting. It's interesting for him as a person, you know, to say like, you know. You know, who who was this guy at you know nineteen twenty? That's you know doing this stuff. That's was very interesting. Again, I don't, probably for the time, maybe not uncommon, but it's just fairly interesting to see, you know, how how he was doing that. You kind of um, along the lines here. You you know, by twenty one, he you kind of give a, a profile of him in the, in the book, saying that he. Uh, I, I think this is some of this is in his words too, but that he was you know he had good reasoning skills, he was clear writing, a sense of justice, resilience. Um, he also had some uh, self-deprecating things to say about himself as well. I guess, you know, just kind of continue on that thread, just him as a person and just a temperament before he, uh, you know, but we're, we're going to come to uh, his first trip to the Amazon. But before he gets out in, into the world and and really just kind of goes for much of his life out <laughs> in the world, you know, up to this point, just kind of who was he, you know, psychologically, I guess, uh, you know, mm. in, in, in terms of his personality and temperament. Yeah, yeah. I think he's um he's probably a, a little bit he, he's not he's not um outgoing, right? He's a bit reserved, I think. Um keenly curious about the natural world, but I'm envisioning him as 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 a bit awkward, you know, so socially. Um but enthusiastic about certain aspects of science and nature and when he can uh, connect with someone with similar interests, you know, um, they really, you know, hit it off, you know, somebody like Bates, for for example, um, a kind of a kind of kindred spirit. Um, but you get a sense of a very affable guy um, with, a, with a very keen sense of justice. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I don't just sort of say that, you know, um, Wallace remarked, you know, very specifically about how, you know, in his education in, in London, um, you know, again, he had left school, he goes to London, he's kind of working, you know, for a while, staying with his brother, John, as an, uh, who is an apprentice builder, and he himself is a kind of apprentice. And, and um, so, but he's availing himself of the Mechanics Institute libraries, you know, these are forerunners of the modern public library. Where you know anyone who's interested in in self improvement, you can go and you know you can you can read books in that library. You can catch their lectures, usually for free or sometimes a very nominal fee. Um, you know opportunities to um, to really um, self educate, but in the process too, you know you can imagine his finger is on the pulse of you know these social movements that are really you know, kind of seismically kind of reverberating through through Britain. You know, this is a time of 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 some, well, not only the enclosures that I mentioned earlier, right, that that um you know caused great discontent among many, um, but also, you know, various experiments in um in in societal improvement. He had an opportunity to um to hear uh, Robert Owen, the great Welsh um reformer, 
lecture at one point. He remembered that very clearly. You know, th- th- this idea of, of of social justice, of of land reform, labor reform. You know, those sorts of things. They really carried over, carried through his entire life. And later in life, he became increasingly dedicated to these to these causes, and quite a few of of his later books were dedicated to them. So I kind of see that period as um, one of great ferment for him. You know, he's, um, you know, maybe a, a bit of an, you know, he's kind of a tall, gangly, kind of awkward guy, um, really, you know, really keen on science and nature, you know, maybe a little bit geeky, you know, that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then he has this kind of um, working man's kind of a social justice you know, aspect, you know, that he he's introduced to um, in these uh, halls of science, the infidel halls, as as some called them at the, at the time. And um, so you, you can kind of see these these seeds of several really important aspects of his um, later, his, his personality, but also his, um, you know, his his writing, um, his his efforts. Um all have their origin, you know, at, at, at that time. Um, so I would say, you know, a, a, a guy who is liable to really look for the best in people, who feels like people need to be given a fair shake, you know, so he has that 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 sense of justice is finally honed. Um, but but also, and we see this a little later too. Um, there's there's a view of, of people. Um, you know, in, in very generous terms, you know, he he thinks well of, of people. He wants to think well of people. And by and large, there's good reason for that. Sometimes it doesn't serve him well, right? Some people do take advantage of that, <laughs> you know. Um, but but you, many of these elements of his personality, you can really see in those years in uh, in London, in Leicester, in Neath, um, in, back in Wales, when he went to take over his brother's business, um, you see all of these aspects in this interesting um, period of ferment. I think it's, it's oh, we'll come to it later. I think it might be more uh, fitting later in the conversation, but uh, I'll just I'll just kind of flag it here that it's not it's not to say that people didn't do this, but it definitely was the outlier of the time that someone would be so concerned with social justice uh, in, in a very true sense then was normative. Now it's more normative now, I think in mm. today's society, of course, um, for various reasons, you know, history moves a certain way, but he definitely was kind of ahead of that. You know, it's not maybe that people didn't care about some of the issues he cared about, but maybe they just weren't as uh, focused on that. They were focused on other things, but it, 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 I was surprised. I didn't know that. So when I read the book, I was really surprised to know that. Wow! Like, not mm. only did he kind of like, you know, wax philosophical about some things. Like he he legitimately seemed to kind of put, uh, you know, some of his own actions where some of his beliefs were in in, in various ways. Mm. Mostly talking about various um indigenous groups and native peoples that he encountered. So we can we can you know flesh it out more there. But it, I thought it was super interesting. Um, that piece for for him. So let's let's talk about the first uh, trip to the Amazon. If I recall, <clears throat> he was there for as it four years. Uh, that first four trip, years, yeah, which is that's a long time to be <laughs> exploring <laughs> in the Amazon, uh, especially in the uh, middle of the 19th century. Um, that, that's a very long time. It's a very very long time. And of course, you know, they didn't have 
know, a cell phone and helicopters and, you know, <laughs> you know, a car. Like it was very much like, you know, you know, roughing it in, in, in many ways and many, many experiences. But I guess um, just kind of lead us into it in terms of how did Wallace with Gates, uh, his, his, uh, his uh, friend there, uh, how did they coordinate the trip to the Amazon? How did they decide to go there? What was the motivation? Um, and then, you know, how did he see, you know, overall his time in the Amazon, uh, you know, as an environment, you know, the environment being critical for species, you start to see a little bit of this, like, hmm, you know, kind of tenets of natural selection a little bit. How, just talk about how he got to the trip uh, to, mm. to to get it all coordinated and to do it, why he spent so much time and how that kind of started influencing more structurally his ideas about uh, mm. evolution and natural selection. Sure, sure. Yeah, in a way that was almost like, you know, again, as an apprentice, almost like, uh, you know, think of that as like his sort of graduate school, you know, <laughs> period. And, and and four years is a long time, although although not really compared to some, you know, Bates ended up spending 11 years and other other explorers like Spruce were there, you know, even longer. Um, but still, I mean, four years is, you know, a, a long time. And it's interesting the way, you know, how he ended up down there um, in Amazonia specifically uh, with with Bates. They, um, I mentioned earlier, they had met in the town of, of Leicester when Wallace had worked as a school teacher for a, about a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was really Bates who introduced him to entomology, to the joys of, of insect collecting and the, the, the you know, um, the beauty, you know, beetles, you know, butterflies, especially beetles in, in their case. And you could tell from the surviving correspondence that these two were, it was more than simply enthusing over, you know, I've got a new, you know, bug here. No, I've, I've got two new ones here. You know, it was more philosophical, you know, it was more the, the scientific questions of the day, like why so much variation, you know, the nature of species, the nature of variation for, for, for these young guys who didn't really have much by way of formal education, it is striking, you know, that they were kind of keen on these questions and in some of their uh, surviving correspondence, um, Wallace specifically mentions, you know, boy, I would, I would love to be able to take one group and really study it thoroughly with a view to the origin of species, you know, it doesn't get more explicit than that, you know? Um, And I think at the time um, it was well known that the, you know, the lush and hyper-diverse tropics, you know, if you're interested in diversity and species and varieties and, you know, you need to go to the tropics, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they were, they're inspired by the likes of, of um, Alexander von Humboldt, mm-hmm. you know, so this, so already the tropics would be uh, alluring to them. And then <clears throat> apparently why Amazonia specifically, um, Wallace had read uh, a book by, um, a, a traveler called Edwards, William Edwards, about uh, sort of, you know, sort of waxing rhapsodic about Amazonia, ab- about the tropics and painting this, I mean, in, from a modern point of view, like this hopelessly kind of romantic image of with like frolicking squirrels and monkeys and, you know, gaily, you know, singing birds and everything is just, you know, teeming. And, you know, it's just a, you know, wonderful, wonderful place. Um perfectly carefree, you know, um, they had this idea that, you know, yes, Amazonia, you know, the Amazon, wouldn't this be fabulous? You know, Uh, it was probably, it it was Edwards, you know, who really inspired them that this would be a place to go. And, 
they um they actually managed to um work out a a scheme whereby uh, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, a kind of um, process whereby they had an agent in London, and that agent was very, very good. And the agent would um, essentially receive specimens they would send back. And then uh, uh, his job, his name was Stevens, would be to advertise them. And this was a time when um, museums are purchasing you know, beautiful rarities from the tropics, um, private collectors who had the means would be, you know, buying, you know, um, precious material like that. And so there was good money to be made in collecting these, these rarities. Mm -hmm. They specialized in insects, but they also collected some other things as well. Mm -hmm. But the, the idea was they would um, collect, they would send their duplicate specimens for sale and then funds would be sent back to them. And this would help them Mm -hmm. um, basically stay, um, you know, they had the resources to to stay in the field and continue their their explorations. And, um, you know, and, and of course, the reality was, you know, far, far from the romantic picture that Edwards had painted. Um, it's tough, you know, it's, it's pretty tough. And, and actually, you know, we all recognize today how the tropics are, you know, extremely rich in diversity. But for any one species, by and large, very low in density. So actually, it's not like you know you just you know just just go and like start plucking all the rare butterflies off of a tree. You know, it's it's actually really hard to find to find you know. And so they learn very 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 quickly. You know that um, oh you know they you know this was an education. You know they they learned very quickly uh, to um, to rely on local people. Um, both indigenous people, but also um, the the um, colonial uh, people, like the, um, the you know um, the, the Brazilians at that time, um, and understand like where to go and ha- and how things work. You know how, how things work in terms of um, logistically. You know getting uh, getting yourself up upriver, downriver. How do you send specimens back to London? How do you pack things? How do you deal with the you know incessant you know, like heat and humidity? The fungi, you know, the mole, the pet, the insect pests that are constantly you know, mm-hmm. beset with black flies and mosquitoes. And, you know, if they're not careful, you know, um, feral dogs make off with their specimens. And, you know, it's like it's just, you know, inc- incredibly, um, you know, uh, stressful kind of an environment and and you need to really be able to come up to speed and and have a sense of you know how to get things done and how to get things done is to have a very good rapport with people right to to um to connect with 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 local people um to to show you know respect which Wallace genuinely had great respect, fascinated by, you know, the sort of ethnologically, you know, the peoples that he's encountering, um, learning their languages, um, recording vocabularies and, um, you know, but he also can run afoul of, of some people, you know, and um, and almost has some kind of some some real scrapes. You know, after about a year or so, he and Bates decided to go their separate ways and collect in different parts yeah. of, of Amazonia. And, um, you know, his four years there probably, it probably ended after four years because he really, it took a lot out of him. He was ill much of the time. He was mm-hmm. at one point, probably more than once, but one certainly um, point that's well known by the accounts of, of uh, the botanist Richard Spruce, he is very close to death. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like nursed, you know, slowly back, you know, back to from the brink, you know, by um, the local people that he's that he's staying with, you know, and um, so he finally, you know, he he decides after after four years, you know, I, I've just got to go home, you know, um, and you know, it, it actually is, um, you know, there's a, a bitter pill there because he soon learns, right as he returns downriver and is and, and is seeking to go home he learns that his young, younger brother um herbert edward who had come out to the amazon to to work with him and help him but determined that he just really wasn't cut out for the rigors of tropical life he's you know he's he's going to throw in the towel and and head home and 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 alfred you know gives him some money and says all right here's what you do you know you you know, you do a little collecting, you, you, you make your way down, you know, to Belen and then you book a ship, you know, and, and the poor kid never made it, you know, he's um, succumbed to disease, you know, in, yeah. in Belen, you can imagine Wallace himself realizing this, you know, and, and probably in no small measure feeling some responsibility mm-hmm. for you know his, his, his brother's death. So, so there, there's, you know, Yes, there were there were some um, you know wondrous things that he saw and did, but then it really came at a very um, steep um, price for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know maybe the, the the ultimate. Well, perhaps losing his brother must have been the ultimate. But but if all of that wasn't bad enough, you know, when Wallace did seek to head home at the end of four years, you know, he found that. You know, much of his collections over the last couple of years of traveling up the Rio Negro and the Rio Apes had been held up in customs. Mm. And he had to sort all that out and finally was able to extract his materials, pack everything up in a merchant vessel and head home only to have the ship catch fire. Yeah. Right. So it, it, it burns. And so, you know, we lo- we lose like there's this black hole of, of insight we might have had mm. into his thinking at that time because virtually all of his notebooks are gone right all of his specimens his notebooks most of his drawings he saved a few drawings of palms and fish you know so you can kind of imagine like what <clears throat> what i think they thought would have been just this tremendous triumph, like making it to South America and they're going to be exploring, um, you know, these distant and unknown lands and, and explore profound philosophical and scientific questions like the nature of species and varieties. Um, boy, you know, by the end of four years, um, you know, he's just really, you know, ground down, you know, um, but, you know, then he characteristically Wallace, you know, he sort of picks himself up by the bootstraps, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's absolutely, uh, you know, amazing how, how things went down there for him. Uh, and you're kind of giving a, a snapshot of it. I remember reading it. Uh, it was really, it was really cool. Uh, so I've been to the Amazon. I haven't been to the Amazon mm. Brazil, but in, uh, in, in Ecuador and in, uh, in South mm. America. And, you know, I, I don't live too far from, you know, Washington, D.C. And, you know, summers here in, in the Mid-Atlantic and in the South, you know, uh, is, is humid. It's very humid. Mm. Uh, if anyone's been to that part here in the United States, and obviously there are many places around the world that are super humid. But uh, I went in 
the, I mean, I went years ago now, but when I went in the non-summer months, mm. and I have to mm-hmm. say the humidity there in the Amazon was at least three times what it is in the mm. most hottest months. it can be oppressive right (laughs) it's it's oppressive it's 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 a lot and uh it's i don't know i mean the amazon is is a special place i mean it feels Mm. in many ways still untouched it feels like everything around you is teeming with life and it's moving Mm. and it's alive and it's you know it's 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 a very you know, I'm I'm not a spiritual person at all, but it, it, it you could kind of get a sense of like there mm. there's this energy here, like you know it's special. Yeah. It's you know it's it's really really you know, and I can't imagine living there for four years. I mean, it would be mm. it has to be a such an an experience. But yes, I mean, the biggest thing is actually not. I mean, I didn't spend that much time there, but you know, a little bit I did. I mean, the thing that you're not worried about is you know animals. You're worried about bugs. <laughs> Mm, right, you, right. Have the, you have this <laughs> heat, bugs. this heat, this 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 uh, you know, this absolute humidity, and there's just bugs there you just have never seen in your entire life. It's just, you know, and so you know, you don't know what's the next thing you're going to step on, what's going to fall down from a tree, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? And so I remember reading this part of the book, kind of going back to that trip I had, remembering, and, uh, yeah, yeah, just remembering how. It's just, it's just, it's just so unique. And I can't imagine, you know, for uh, an English guy <laughs> getting over right. there and being like wide-eyed, like, wow, this is so different. Um, but yeah, as you, as yeah. you detailed a lot of those, those things, you know, he, you know, his, his brother dies, it has to be some kind of uh, maybe guilt there, uh, losing a lot of the things he had collected, uh, just kind of hit with some bad luck in, in many ways. Mm. But I guess the, the one piece here, uh, I, I think it comes up again later in Asia, which we're, which we'll get to in a minute, but, um, his, his ideas and interactions with indigenous peoples in the Amazon seemed very, and again, that's not the only folks he, he, he interacted with, but it seemed very, um, humane. Like he, he, he treated them, it seems pretty equally, pretty, you know, seeing their humanity, you know, ways in which they did things were you know maybe just as valid or or an alternative you know way of doing things it wasn't like you know he came in there and had the right way to do things i guess just talk about how he interacted with various indigenous groups in the amazon while he was there yeah sure um yeah you know he he did have a um a real sense of their humanity right and i think that is a departure you know from many many um Many people, you know, from uh, this more kind of, you know, Eurocentric kind Mm -hmm. of society. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I don't want to sort of paint him as, you know, like, you know, completely um, bias free. You know, I mean, Wallace has his blind spots. I mean, he's human. Um, for him, there's no question. Like the the wonders of European civilization, you know, sure, you know, it's the it's the pinnacle of achievement. You know, the the science, the technology, the art, you know, all of that. But he doesn't use that as some kind of a cudgel. He doesn't use that as a way to sort of denigrate or criticize. Um, just sort of the the contrary. He seems to well, he admires the local people, indigenous people, especially. For a number of reasons, one of them is a bit romantic. Maybe he does, he can he sort of um, 
at times in Amazonia, he sort of seemed to romanticize um, their lives, you know, that again, from a Eurocentric point of view, like a simpler, you know, back to nature, you know, living close to nature, you know, kind of lifestyle. But he recognized that, you know, these were fundamentally good, honest people, like living, you know, close to close to the land. And we could learn much from that. And he, I think that fairly, you know, he thinks about his own society and um, he thinks about, you know, the issues of, um, you know, being like many people being constantly consumed by just making money, you know, like material wealth and, um, you know, really maybe in his view, losing touch with, with, um, you know, sort of the very, you know, basics of like connecting with other people in the natural world. And he really admires that. He, there's um, one, one episode where he, you know, um, he writes poetry, you know, wouldn't really, doesn't really, um, you know, capture the modern imagination necessarily. It's kind of a very dated style, you know, but, but he, he writes some basic, you know, poetry where he sort of imagines himself like, you know, I, I could be an Indian here. I could live here and I could raise my children like wild fawns. And you get a sense of the, there's a bit of the, of romanticism there, mm-hmm. but, but it comes from a good place. You know, that romanticism is to see the humanity in these people, their their abilities, um, their knowledge. Um, they they live in what is really, you know, it, it is not the cornucopia that people like Edwards would lead, um, you know, Western readers to believe. They are, it, it is a harsh environment in, in many ways. And it takes a lot of, uh, of know-how to know how to procure uh, a living there, you know, um, to, to find food, you know, to, to treat diseases, you know, all sorts of, of, of concerns that, that people would have. And, and he, he really seems to, to connect with them on, on that level. He also really decries the corruption of European society. He sees this in the form of um, corrupt officials and corrupt clergy, and not all of them were corrupt, I'm sure, right? But he did encounter some who um, today we would call them human traffickers, right? They were trafficking in kidnapping, you know, um, you know, young in- Indian children and then selling them, you know, into into slavery. And um, and he Wallace himself really ran afoul of some traffickers and might have lost his life at, at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, he's sort of very sort of wide-eyed and innocent in some ways, and he wants to believe in the, the best of people. And sometimes people took advantage of that. And and um and it, it could have been much, much worse for him. Let's put it put it that way, worse than 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 it was. Um but yeah, I I, I do think that. Uh, you see him um, seeing the essential humanity in indigenous peoples, wanting to understand them and their 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 lives, their culture on their terms. You know, he's recording vocabularies of their language, trying to understand or communicate. You know, um, how do you understand their maybe cosmological beliefs or um, you know the nature of nature? Really, you know. Um, the nature of a life force or whatever, you know, that, that might be um, much later. And we can get into this a bit later, I suppose, but much later we see this in uh, manifesting in interesting ways where Wallace, he is um, of the belief that, that these indigenous people, wherever they're from, right. The Banawa of, 
of um, the upper Rio Negro, you know, or the Dayaks of, of Borneo, that um, they are as fully human, right, as any European. Cognitively, they have every capacity, right, that, that we are fully the same we are the same, right? And that was really a departure. You know, I'm not going to say singular. I'm sure that there were others yeah. that yeah. had such views, but but really a departure from the very common view. Even those who thought in evolutionary terms later, kind of, you know, a couple of decades later, who who would see a kind of evolutionary progression or hierarchy and see themselves or European society as kind of at a higher rung of the evolutionary ladder than, you know, some of these hunter-gatherers societies. Wallace did not see it that way. Yeah, which is surprising. I mean, I mean, this is even pre-eugenics period <laughs> where there was all of this kind of stuff, this hierarchy of, you know, races of people and all these, you know, this, you know things that we know is not true now, obviously. And, and, uh, and yeah, so even him, I mean, he's before this period or really at the height of it, I guess. And for him to have that is right. I mean, maybe he wasn't probably wasn't the only one, but yes, a, a significant departure from from the time, which mm. is interesting that he seems to be pretty. I don't know. That tells me that he's he's sort of um, kind of an ind very independent kind of person. He's kind of marching mm. to the beat of his own drum, if you will. If uh, yes, kind yes. of like. Well, this makes sense. Might be popular. Might not be. Don't really care. <laughs> this makes sense, that's, you know. Um, that's a bit where the the radical and revolutionary aspects <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. of the title come in. Yeah, you know, yeah. Where, where he does have this. Um, he's a tendency to be very iconoclastic. Like you know, mm -hmm. if there's a conventional view of this, like he's going to question it, you know, and 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 push back, and he might come around to it, but he might not, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So there's a there's a brief I guess interlude here where he he comes back home as you said he kind of gets you know uh, rested up back to health and then mm -hmm. you know he becomes uh, involved with various scientific groups uh, you know he's known as a collector I guess just the brief question here was was you know just where was the you know the field various fields of of, of science at at that time and I guess mm -hmm. you could say kind of early science communication is one way to say it is. You know, how mm. is he collecting all of these things and then saying, here's why it's important or here's things that I mm. found and telling that at least to um, scientific groups, societies, and then maybe to the more general public. But just talking about this brief interlude that he has, um, uh, I say brief because then he's in Asia for a very long time. So what was mm -hmm, the kind mm -hmm. of uh, piece here? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, science at that time, I mean, it's very much the purview of uh, a select group, you know, of um, a privileged, you know, privileged white guys, you know, yeah. that, um, you know, the occasional woman, you know, would be kind of tolerated, but not active, not always actively supported, um, let alone people of color, you know, and, and um, it was also a very exciting time in science was, you know, amazing, you know, new insights into the nature, you know, ast astronomical discoveries being made. Uh, geology is very much ascendant and and very evocative. This idea of of a deeper a deeper Earth history and the mysteries of sort of a, you know an ancient planet, and um, you know you see sort of not only geology but um, other disciplines like archaeology, you know, mm -hmm. kind of developing uh, around this time. And so Wallace gains great um, respect 
as um, as a very, very persevering naturalist, right? I mean, in the face of all of this adversity, he had um, really he really did make stupendous collections. But in addition to that, you know, he did manage to write quite a few papers. Some of them were written in the field in in South America and then sent back to London. His agent would often read, um, you know, these long and detailed letters and uh, about his explorations and observations. Um, you know, he 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 garnered the great respect of of these people, um, his fellow naturalists, uh, the Royal Geographical Society. You know, um, they they published his uh, very detailed map of um, of the Amazon and the and the Rio Negro. Um, you know, again, they he got kudos and, and and accolades for that. You know, for all of his losses, I'm actually amazed at how much he was actually able to achieve in the year or so that he was mm-hmm. home, because mm-hmm. um, it. It is amazing. He was able to cobble together from the many, many letters he had written, articles he had written, um, probably memory to, to some extent, um, and then the few, few materials he saved from the burning trip. Um, he actually wrote, you know, gosh, there must have been half a dozen paper, papers read to the learned societies in that year, and two books. Amazingly, he he, he managed to write like his travel narrative, which you know. I, I always I always feel like, you know, his his uh, fellow naturalists, you know, in the in the scientific community were rather uncharitable. They really kind of sort of were very dismissive of his, of his like travel narrative, you know, on his his travels in the Amazon. And Darwin famously said, you know, oh, this, you know, hardly facts enough, you know, like very dismissive, like give the guy a break, you know, yeah, right, right. <laughs> like he, I mean, consider. That book is remarkably detailed, actually, if you think about all he had lost, you know, mm-hmm. and then there was another book on on palms of the Amazon that, again, you know, didn't he got like a, a lukewarm, you know, reception. But when I say persevering naturalist, I really mean that that was kind of a phrase that was used at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it was kind of a mark of um, respect, you know, mm-hmm. like this is a really persevering naturalist, like a hard worker, you know, mm-hmm. and um, you got to give him credit, you know, mm-hmm. for for um you know despite all the adversity doing really really wonderful things you know mm-hmm. so he's fortunate you know w- when he and Bates went to the Amazon they really like bummed their way you know mm-hmm. they like you know they were like in sub steerage you know like in a hold practically of like some you know some freighter you know that's heading and um you know but but now you know, he actually is garnering some respect mm. as, you know, he's really pretty talented. You know, he's a great observer. He's an excellent collector. He wrote these very astute papers, not to mention, you know, a couple of these books. Look at this map that he produced. Like, holy smokes, can you imagine? Here's a guy who's, you know, he he's, you know, in the deep, deepest Amazonia collecting and so accumulating a lot of things. But all the while, he's making detailed observations of petroglyphs and geology and the local people. And he's surveying and and map making in the field. I mean, you know, it's just astounding. You know, how, how, how can he possibly do that? Like around the campfire at night, he's like drafting his map of the Amazon, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he he did garner their their respect. And um and and it is for that reason that he actually gained the um the support of the Royal 
geographical society to help him on his second expedition, to help him get there, right? Mm -hmm. So he didn't have to just bum his way. They helped him out. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess the why, I mean, he, how, how long did he spend in Asia after this? I mean, a long, many years. There or about eight years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why, I guess, you know, he, you know, spent a good amount of time in the Amazon was, was, was the natural progression like, oh, we're going to go to Asia now. We're going to go to Southeast Asia. Was that kind of the natural thing to do as opposed to going to, I don't know, uh, another part of the world or um, mm. was that, you know, why not Madagascar, I guess? I don't know. Right. But, right. I mean, yeah. What was the, I guess the motive or incentive for going to Southeast Asia in particular, like you said, in the, in, you know, Indonesia and, the, um, you know, all of the different islands. Yeah. Well, originally it wasn't going to be Asia. Um, you know, when, when he was promised, um, help from the Royal Geographical Society, you know, um, they were going to, you know, um, let him book passage on a ship going, you know, someplace interesting. It had to be the tropics. You know, he he actually um, considered very seriously and might have gone to Africa, um, tropical Africa at, at, at one point. And for various reasons, that trip just didn't quite take off. I don't know if there was a, you know, the, the ship's. Um, command changed and it ended up going on a different assignment or, or, or what it was. And, um, but there were actually some really good reasons to go to Southeast Asia. Um, you know, for, first of all, it's, it's possible that he might've, might've felt that Amazonia was getting a little too crowded, <laughs> you know, he, um, in the sense that, you know, a number of naturalists then, I mean, this is known as you know, this incredible place and, and, and a number of naturalists had, had then, you know, especially because of the exertions of the likes of Wallace and, and Bates, um, Richard Spruce, you know, and, and others, um, more were going that way. And so probably the one motivation is I don't want to go back there. I've been there. I've kind of done that. Maybe it has some rather bad memories, too, and doesn't want to go back to to those conditions. And plus, there are just lots of lots of naturalists heading that way. But Southeast Asia, you know, that was. Um, and that was very different, you know, especially the remoter parts of the great archipelago that we know today as, as, as Indonesia. You know, this this fabulously, you know, expansive place, an island archipelago that's, you know, imagine like just, you know, um, spanning, you know, the, the distance of, say, the continental United States, this vast, vast area only divided up into, you know, just um, islands, great and small, teeming with, um, you know, all sorts of, uh, of exotic rarities. You know, um, there were also some practical reasons, you know, um, to, to go to Southeast Asia. I think that Wallace, not that he sort of talked about this, but I'm imagining that he recognized that the um, the colonial administration of those islands, there, there was a kind of um, network of boats that were were making the rounds to to different islands, especially in the more western part of the uh, of the archipelago. And um, you know, so one could kind of think about, you know, there 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 is a network there in place to collect specimens and get them shipped, you know, back to um to to England. And so that's a, a practical consideration um a, a, as well. Mm -hmm. Um and so, yeah, so for all of these reasons, you know, um, 
but but largely, you know, he didn't necessarily get to choose exactly where he was going to go because he was being given birth on a on a, on a ship, a Royal Navy vessel. So <clears throat> I guess that there's an interesting point that we're going to, I, I suspect, get to the 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 most, uh, I guess, for what most people understand about uh, Wallace and his relationship with Darwin in a minute. But it sounds like there was, I think there was some weather concerns. It was just like you know a lot of rain. I don't know if it was a monsoon or something like that. But there was a, a, some mm. weather issues. And he had downtime while he was in Asia. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I remember circling this in the book that you, you said that 1854 was pretty important during this down period because this is where we see really the first glimpses of some of the ideas of evolution. I guess talk about some of his, what inspired him here in this moment. Was it just like, okay, I've done a bunch of things. I've been a few places. I've written some papers. I've you know detailed and mapped out all this stuff. I'm here now. I have some downtime. How do I... How do I kind of like organize and synthesize all of this into like a cohesive structure and narrative? And then he just kind of started thinking, thinking, thinking. How did I guess it come about some of these ideas that he was having? Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The timing is very interesting. 1854. This is the very year that he arrives in the in the East. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, therefore, that um papers that we can discuss in a moment that he was writing at that time clearly had to be kind of, you know, they're fermenting, that he's thinking about this, maybe building on ideas that he already had formulated in Amazonia. We, we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but he, um, you know, he, he arrives in, um, in Singapore, and then he travels to Borneo, um, to Sarawak um, specifically, and and in um, there he had an invitation from the Raja um, of Sarawak, uh, James Brook, you know, the great so-called White Raja of, of Sarawak, who really enjoyed kind of scientific discourse and had uh, he kind of entertained a, a sort of you know a sort of scientific salon you know various expatriates that would be you know in in um Kuching and and environs would be invited to come and and he really enjoyed the conversation and he had a nice library and he 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 invited Wallace he really enjoyed Wallace's um uh, conversation and it is significant. You mentioned the weather. It is significant that these ideas are percolating. They're they're sort of fermenting. Uh, he's also in some interesting society. Has access again to a nice library, right? The Rajah's library. Um, he also traveled with some of his own books. He traveled with his own little library, right? But you can imagine that can only be so big. That's pretty hard, yeah. you know. So um, during the um, the rainy season, you know, the Rajah gives him free use of um of a little cottage at the foot of Santubong mountain you know near Kuching um and uh there he says you know you know it's like nothing to do you know it's a lousy weather lousy collecting you know all he could do is really you know kind of read over his notes reading his books kind of thinking about things and and I really do think that you know the ferment didn't start then I think that it had started prior to then but he starts connecting these certain these certain dots, and he has this kind of epiphany. And um, the result of that epiphany is this really remarkable 
paper that we call um, the Sarawak Law paper. Mm-hmm. And um, he says that he was um, inspired to write this paper because you know he's kind of up on the latest scientific discourse because uh, he would um, there would be a long delay, but he would eventually get scientific magazines or journals and um, and kind of read the latest and and probably the Raja is getting these also regularly. And um, and he reads about um, this one um, naturalist named Forbes who had this kind of idea that it was became known as polarity theory, and it was kind of a kind of quasi mystical, kind of metaphysical theory about the um, sort of the way life on Earth kind of ebbs and flows according to this particular um, plan or pattern. Um, something that Wallace really found quite nonsensical. So ostensibly, he says, he was goaded into sort of wanting to write this paper in response to what he thought was kind of nonsense being spouted by this otherwise, you know, very talented naturalist, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so he he writes the paper, and um, this is February um, of um, of eighteen fifty five now, and. Um, he sets out propositions in the in the distribution of species in two contexts. One context is a kind of geological context, the distribution of species and their relationships in the fossil record from, from what they could tell to date, right? And then the distribution of species as you observe them on Earth today, what we would call today biogeography, right? The geographical distribution of species. And he realized that when you put together these propositions, they they dovetail in a very beautiful way. And it leads him to his, his great insight that the sort of 10th proposition was this idea that every species must have come into existence coincident in space and time with a pre-existing closely related species. Mm-hmm. And... He just, you know, it's just this amazing insight. Like nobody had thought of that before. Nobody had connected all of these dots. And and you can, from a modern perspective, you can see the evolutionary implications. He's not so explicit about that, but clearly that's the way he's been trending ever since, um, and we didn't really talk about this, but ever since some years before he became convinced of the reality of species change. And he's kind of thinking about the nature of species, varieties, the origin of species. And so he has this, this tremendous insight, the Sarawak law, and he fires this off, you know, it's sent back to London and it published, you know, um, it, it appears in print the following September. And it really got the attention of some of the leading naturalists of the day, you know, um, the geologist um, Charles Lyell, you know, maybe the the leading light in British science at the time, specifically opened a whole new notebook on um, this this idea about species change. Right on page one, he's he's writing out excerpts from Wallace's paper. You know, um, other naturalists too. Even Darwin was made aware that this is really a remarkable insight. This this paper, I think that that really gives us some some clues into just what had been fermenting. You know, in in Wallace's mind. Um, you know, again, that was written in February eighteen fifty five. He only you know he he got back. Um, in in October of, of, of 1853 from his you know his disaster at sea after 
after um, the Amazon. Then he, you know, he had arrived in 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 Singapore only, you know, less than a, a year prior. Um, so you can see that he had to have had the seeds planted much earlier to be thinking about these things and then articulate this remarkable paper. So, so yeah. So now we're we're kind of getting to like uh, I guess one of the the big moments i guess of of his life and and i i'm glad you explained the the the, the law because i was going to ask about that so I'll, ju- I'll just ask it kind of uh directly uh, i i think you treat it well in the in the in the book so <laughs> at the time maybe you know obviously we still have the power of evolution dictating and describing uh, many things in the natural world. It's a powerful, it's one of the most powerful um, facts of of life that we that we know and understand. It's extremely powerful. I, I don't know if Darwin and or Wallace thought of it that way. Maybe they thought of it as a grand kind of unifying, et cetera, et cetera, but that mm. it would be so tremendous, you know, that, that mm. you know, that your name is going to be forever associated with this, mm. you know, at the, at the time theory or idea. In, in the book, you make it seem as if Wallace just didn't care about who got mm. first credits and did he get credit at all and you know and Mm. it seems that darwin was a maybe darwin had a little bit more of his like finger on the pulse here because he was just kind of like very worried that he was he didn't want to plagiarize somebody's ideas he didn't want to steal he didn't want to and of course there's the whole thing of the publisher and they're you know getting kind of the blame but did they really kind of were the ones Mm. leading the charge maybe that was just the scapegoat you know all this kind of stuff and Mm. But I guess the, the main question here is, is, is it, is it, is it true that basically, not exactly, but basically two guys in the same time frame, independently with, with, with an asterisk next to that, uh, basically realize evolution and, and, and some aspect of natural selection. Is, is that really what we have here? They just, it just was a wild space. They were big naturalists. They traveled the world. They kind of came to the same or similar end results um, at the same time. Mm. Yeah, not but not exactly the same time. Um, right, right. So, so yeah, but the same time frame. It's it's true. Yeah. But it, it's interesting. Um, I mean, there's a couple of aspects to what you just yeah, yeah. described that, that we can we can talk about. But I might mention up front, yeah, you know, in a way, Wallace didn't seem to care um, about priority, you know, when 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 this great idea was was first announced. And he became aware that Darwin had been working on that. So it's about a 20-year period between the two. And the way I like to think about this is that it's interesting. I make a case for how Darwin and Wallace each pursued strikingly similar lines of evidence and kind of um trying to 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 collect evidence and connect dots you know in favor of this idea of of species change but it's interesting to note that the ways they went about that and their kind of their working method they're sort of inverses of one another 
And um, by that, I mean this, you know, I call, I've called Darwin a kind of reluctant evolutionist. You know, when he set out on the Beagle voyage, you know, he didn't have any preconceived notions about, you know, the impermanence of species and those sorts of things. Um, over time, he was he was led down this path by the evidence he saw and, and trying to make sense of this evidence. And famously, you know, in the spring of 1837, he became convinced that indeed species must change somehow, right? And it, it actually took him maybe another year, um, maybe a little less than a year before he actually hit upon a mechanism and he dubbed it natural selection. Mm. And then think about this. So this is 1838. And then from 1838 to 1858, when Wallace had his own great insight into natural selection, there's a 20-year period where Darwin is thinking very deeply about the implications of this idea. What does it mean? Um, and how can we see evidence of it in adaptation in nature and in the in the, um, the the historicity of nature, the inherent kind of history built into um, into structure and function and those sorts of like clues to an evolutionary history, you know? So he he has the yep. benefit of really thinking. Oh, sorry. Let me, sorry, sorry. Let me pause real quick just for to underline yeah. it. 20 years to think about, again, not that he was only thinking about this, but 20 years to sit on an idea and really, really try and get at it is a long... And really think I, about it, yeah. I have not <laughs> thought about an idea for 20 years. <laughs> That's a long time. Really that, is. That, that suggests that he he kind of maybe somewhere understood how big this could be, maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, he absolutely, he, you're right. I mean, he absolutely understood how big this could be. In fact, evidence of that, it's really interesting, Xavier, to think about how Darwin and his working method pretty early on, you know, in 1842, he wrote kind of a short essay on this idea. And it's historians call it his um, sketch. And then two years later, you know, he wrote like a really lengthy essay, like a couple hundred pages. And um, and it's like a mini version of the origin of species. This is 1844. And, um, you know, some of the, the chapters have many of them have the same headings, you know. And um, famously, this is the year, right? 1844 is the year that the anonymous vestiges of the natural history of creation was published, right? So this was the kind of a, a sort of, um, we would call it evolutionary. They would call it transmutational tract, like arguing for, you know, evolution cosmologically and, you know, evolution in all things, you know, society and earth and, and, and the cosmos and you, you name it. And um, was published anonymously, you know, the publisher realizing that you'd probably be in, in big trouble and this would have very negative um you know, repercussions, <laughs> say the least, right? So, mm -hmm. so it may not be a coincidence that in that same year, Darwin writes the very long essay and then, um, you know, has a, a fair copy of it sealed in an envelope, right? With a letter to his wife that if he should unexpectedly die, 
that, you know, she should, um, you know, please publish this immediately. Like he knew the significance of this, of this thing. And I think you're right that it was, he had the benefit of really cogitating on this for a long time. Um, and, you know, so he could sort of come to see nuance, um, like, you know, like the forerunner uh, ideas that we could consider the forerunner of modern evolutionary concepts like inclusive fitness in social evolution, like the evolution of um, of um, insect societies, for example, ants and, and bees and things. And um, but, but Wallace, you know, it's interesting. Darwin's the reluctant evolutionist who like came in a roundabout way to like accepting the idea. But then once he did, he, he fully embraced it. Mm. Wallace, again, the, the radical and revolutionary of my title, <laughs> really it speaks to his personality. He, he is one who he will give time of day to ideas that many other people, maybe most other people will um, be dismissive of. One of those ideas was the idea that was in the vestiges. He read the vestiges, unlike Darwin, he immediately was enraptured and said, wow, you know, this is great stuff. You know, this guy's right on, you know, whoever the author is, he's right, right on. Right. And he becomes a committed, uh, we would say evolutionist, right. To use the parlance of the day, um, transmutation would have been the term they used. Um, and so then Wallace, we see in his notebooks and his writings, especially in Southeast Asia, where he's making myriad observations, really paralleling the kinds of lines of evidence that Darwin himself had explored. So I see them as intellectually traveling the same trajectory, mm -hmm. but separated by years, right, by almost two decades. Mm -hmm. And then when Wallace finally does hit upon he has this like epiphany, you know, he's in this malarial, you know, haze. Mm -hmm. And um, by his own account, he had this, you know, this kind of epiphany. We can see from his notebooks what he had been thinking about around the same time. Um, observations that have to do with competition, with population, mm -hmm. you know, those sorts of things. He has this eureka moment, right? Um, he doesn't come up with a name for the process. You know, Darwin called it natural selection. Wallace describes the mechanism, and it's exactly that mechanism. But he didn't he didn't coin a term for it. Um, but you know, as as fate would have it, because he had been conversing, you know, corresponding with with Darwin over these questions of, about the nature of species and varieties, um, then knowing their mutual interest he decided to immediately share this idea with none other than Darwin, right? <laughs> Sent it to him, you know, where, you know, it's like this bombshell lands in Darwin's, um, Darwin's study. So I, I think that Darwin had the benefit of all of those years of thinking very deeply about the implications of evolution. But, but Wallace, he, he spent those years thinking very deeply about the lines of evidence for it, mm. but really all of these events of, um, you know, the the theory being made public and origin of species being published the following year, that was hot on the heels of Wallace's discovery. He didn't have the luxury of really thinking very long about the implications of this of this this mechanism, the way the way Darwin did. Um, and so, in that respect, they're kind of there's sort of an inversion in 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 the way that they. Um, 
explored lines of evidence and made their discoveries. You know, Darwin discovering natural selection first and then exploring evidence. Wallace exploring evidence first and then finally discovering natural selection. I guess a few things about that is why didn't they just like publish together? Like why didn't they write origin of species together? Like, you know, or maybe of some way or, or, you know, well, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, that's a fair question. A good, a good question. Because if Darwin's being influenced by all of the lines of reasoning of how he's coming to this and Darwin's like, Oh, uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I better put this out here before people start kind of really kind of catching on. And, you know, I got to kind of get there. Why didn't he offer to Wallace? Like, Hey, we, we've been corresponding back and forth. Why don't we write this together? You know, I'm, you know, I know you're over there in Asia. I can do seventy percent of the writing. You do, or however it would, you know. But yeah. you'll get your name on it. Or as you fantasize in the book, wouldn't that have been awesome if they both wrote two big things at the same time and just put them out, like Origin of Species from Darwin, and then uh, I forget what the the working title would have been for yeah, Wallace on, on the Organic Law of Change from Wallace, you know? right? <laughs> and then you just put them both out or something. Like, why, yeah. why do you think that didn't happen? I guess. That would have been amazing had they both had right. Wallace on Great. forward with his own, you know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, Darwin, Darwin had um, been working on his big book, you know, a big book, and he really envisioned this would be like a tome. You know, this would be the definitive. You know, we mentioned earlier how Darwin certainly appreciated the import of this idea, the power of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. This is a this is a really profound insight into the natural world. I, I can kind of understand if Darwin felt like, you know, this is my baby. Like mm-hmm. I discovered this 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. I, I have been laboring all these years on like I he I, I think it's a it's fair speculation that he he wanted ironclad, you know, watertight evidence, like as strong a case as he could make. And so he's, he's pursuing like, you know, he's, he's looking at, at um, patterns of hybridization, the fossil record, biogeography, you know, behavior. He's like all of these observations he's pulling together. Um, I explored a lot of this working method in an earlier book I had written called Darwin's Backyard, where I envisioned Darwin downhouse is like this it's like you know his personal field station, right? <laughs> with his kids and his and family friends and everybody helping him with all of these, like you know, at any one time there's a dozen different little experiments going on in the garden, in the woods, in the greenhouse, in the pond, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, so to answer your question, I, I could really sort of understand Darwin as feeling like this is this is mine, you know, and not really. Like, who is this guy Wallace? Like he just like <laughs> he came up came up with this idea of, of natural selection um, out of the blue. Like, but does he, he? You know, he doesn't have anything else. You know, he doesn't. You know, I've been laboring over the. You know, mm-hmm. that's my armchair. You know, sure. psychological spe- mm-hmm. speculation. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not. Maybe not least, probably because he did appreciate the import. You know that this is a profound insight. Yeah. Um, and 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 Wallace's response, you know, again, it, it speaks to Wallace's just, you know, just, you know, endless 
I mean, generosity, this, this um, generosity of spirit where like his first response, you know, when he, when he, he gets origin of species, he's like, you know, Darwin's done it. You know, he has knocked this out of the park. Like this is, you know, his name will, 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 will live as long as, you know, Newton's, you know, the greatest philosopher. I mean, at that point, Wallace, by reading the origin, which by his own account, he, he read and reread multiple times very quickly. He's still in the field, you know, he's still in Southeast. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he just, then he sees it like, you know, Darwin had pulled together all of these seemingly disparate lines of evidence, many of the same ones Wallace himself had been pursuing. And he, I think he just has to hand it to Darwin that, wow, this guy like pulled this together in the, into this, like just absolutely scintillating book. Like I could never have done this. I have to take my hat off to him. You know, that's his, his is, response. Is that, yeah. Is that, I mean, as you talk about in the book and in his, his kind of correspondence with him, he seems almost to kind of defer to him almost as if it's like, look, you, you've been doing this. Um, I may have also found it kind of independently in my own way, which just basically says the power of the, of the idea, but mm. is it more of just like, yeah, you run with it because, you know, he's a little bit older. He had been around a little bit, you know, whatever that kind of thing. And, and then you, you know, he kind of, you know, as you say, becomes the first Darwinian, like you, you see him afterwards yeah, yeah. really kind of, you know, cheerleading him on and yeah, 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 yeah. Is that, it seems to me, the thing that read out of that, cause you could probably, if it was a different type of person or something like that, see someone that would be like, no way. I also found this, Hey, you didn't publish it. Tough shit, man. I'm going to go yeah. publish it. That's how right, it is. Right, right. It, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not, it, it really, to me, says like, yes, it's really a temperament thing. I mean, I think we can, I think what you say in the book was clear to me. Uh, and what you're saying now is that Darwin really probably does really deserve the credit uh, for, for, you know, evolution and natural selection and everything. But, you know, the fact that he, you know, how this correspondence went, you know, I think it's a, it's a really big moment, very charitable of, of, of Wallace mm. as well. Cause he very much could yeah, have yeah. taken advantage of that. He, he could have a very different, more combative, you know, personality. Mm-hmm. It could have been very ugly, you know, mm-hmm, certainly. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, today in, in modern science, you know, um, we do we do take publication as the kind of like wh- whoever publishes first they've they've reached the finish line you know right. um and that was less clear or maybe in flux in the 19th century where there was you know it was a common and maybe sort of gentlemanly thing mm. that um the originator of an idea regardless of if it was published or not mm. is given due honor you know there's there's some of that going on and mm-hmm. probably some practical aspects. I mean, you know, hard for us to understand, get in Wallace's head. You know, we can certainly see in some of his first letters that he's writing, singing Darwin's praises. You know, he he realizes Darwin is an elder naturalist. He's pretty famous yeah. by yeah. then, even like even with that before Origin of Species, he's very well known. He is very much part of the scientific establishment. I've made a case, and I think there's very good evidence for this, that, you know, Wallace in his kind of iconoclastic way, as he's working in his notebooks, right, thinking about this, he's planning on taking on Charles Lyell, 
the the preeminent geologist whose famous principles of geology included in the second volume a lengthy rebuttal of the idea that species can change mm. and i think it's fair to say that that this was taken by many maybe most naturalists as fairly like that, that's the final word on the subject that's the the damning statement you know lyle has spoken that's mm -hmm. it <laughs> you know and and he, he has like all these arguments and in in wallace's most famous and important notebook from southeast asia there's a long section where you can see the structure of his planned book. He's planning on taking on Lyle, you know, not in a disrespectful way. This is in the spirit of scientific discourse, right? He's writing out Lyle's arguments and then he's rebutting it, writing out the next one, rebutting it. You know, when, when Darwin, when, when Wallace sends his paper to Darwin, it's not a coincidence that he says to Darwin, if you think this is worthwhile, can you like show it to Lyle, right? <laughs> like that's really who he's trying to, to, to get to, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting. He recognizes that Darwin, Lyle, I mean, they are the elite of British science at that time. And I think he probably recognized that thanks to his independent discovery, um, you know, as he writes in letters like to his mom, he you know says, wow, you know, this is amazing. You know, this this will assure me, you know, the the acquaintance of these eminent men. You know, so think about like the Wallace of, you know, when he's in his teens and early 20s, you know, the Wallace of um, of an impoverished family, the Wallace of like leaving school at 13, the Wallace of like, you know, working hard to make a living self-taught, you know, and and here he is, an entree to like the upper echelon of British science. You can kind of imagine that some of that is in there too. He's very, he's, he's respectful of these more eminent naturalists, but I don't want to say that he's respectful in the sense that he's going to be simply groveling. Like yeah, he, yeah. he doesn't hesitate to put his ideas out there to take on even the most august you know, um, intellectuals of, of, of the day, um, but in a respectful way in the spirit of discourse, you know. Um, so the, there may be some of that, you know, some people have speculated it's a class thing, you know, like he wants he wants an entree into that class. And and the way to get that is not to create a scene, right, but to be gentlemanly about it. Well, maybe, maybe I don't know. I think he's genuine in saying, you know, this this guy Darwin um, is amazing. He he had this amazing insight. He wrote this epical book. We we must give him, um, you know, all all due you know, um, kudos and, and and accolades. You know, he's he's genuine about that to a fault, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because like if, if if my math is right, you know, Wallace is thirty five or thirty six years old. He's still pretty young, and. Yeah, yeah. Darwin's in his early fifties. I mean, That's there's right. there's a there's a significant age gap there where it's like not 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 tremendously, but enough where it's like he's the kind of more seasoned veteran kind of person. As you said, he was already famous, so you know. Then it's like okay, like you know, here's here's we're gonna get behind Darwin, and and I've kind of already found this out on my own some aspect of it. So like it it definitely holds. Um, hmm. That that just doesn't. I find that I mean, maybe not. Maybe this is the cynic in me. I just 
I just don't see that happening today. I mean, you know, Mm. if if the 35 year old you know uh you know doctor finds a cure for cancer and mm-hmm. there's the 50 some year old you know doctor that's been doing this research for 25 years i mean i just don't think it's like you know what you take the credit you found the cure, the cure but never published it but never know? published it right like that's yeah. not gonna happen like there's no yeah, yeah. way that's gonna happen like <laughs> you know i mean maybe maybe not you know maybe maybe it will be a whole like i'm sure it'll be politics behind it but whenever that happens there'll be a whole team of people that found it or something like that but i mean mm, yeah 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 i mean i think that it's it's interesting though the the, the time frame you um you're talking about the two wallaces so this is interesting mm. um yeah, i think i had this right he didn't follow natural selection all the way with our brain consciousness uh things like that and then this is where you get into his spiritualism um mm. so i guess talk about how far he went with natural selection the spiritual aspect of, of him and, and how maybe some of his spiritualism obfuscated mm. some of the advancements of the theory is it this is mm. less like a personal belief but more of like well, let me do some of these gymnastics, you know, to kind of make it all fit. H- how does his spiritualism kind of fit in here? And then how did mm. that kind of um, uh, sit with other people that maybe knew about that and said, oh, mm. no, man, this is a little, little kind of getting <laughs> far out here. How, how did it kind of be right. received, was it received? Yeah, yeah. Well, initially, I think it's fair to say that he did take natural selection the whole way. You know, uh-huh. the whole kid, little humans, you know. Right. Um, our, our brains and and everything. Um, and for the longest time, I mean, again, part of Wallace's kind of you know, so-called the radical in Wallace was, you know, and the iconoclast in Wallace was, um, you know, he was uh, a self-avowed um, skeptic, you know, religious skeptic, maybe even atheist, you know, um, far from, <laughs> far from orthodox uh, at, at any time. Um and so one that was given to material explanations for, for things, right? But but there were clearly, you know, interests on Wallace's part in kind of really puzzling and 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 really for the time and maybe even today, mysterious aspects of um of ourselves and maybe aspects of the natural world. And, you know, um, so for example, profound questions that we still grapple with today, like you know, the nature of consciousness, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to really kind of, you know, I don't know, wrap our minds around our minds, <laughs> you know, if you will, um, you know, that, that it's, it's truly, you know, remarkable. And, and, and Wallace, um, he had discovered um, some years earlier that he seemed to have a talent for this, it was almost like a parlor trick. That was all the rage, right? And that was um, like mesmerism, which I guess is kind of a forerunner of like we would call it hypnotism today. Mm-hmm. And the power of suggestion and like, how does that work? Like, and what, like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it was quite mysterious. And even all through the 19th century, there were lots of speculations about, you know, powers of mind and you know is something emanating from mind or how you know it was kind of how 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 does this even work you know and when wallace discovered that he had the this ability i think it fed into this um this idea you know phrenology was prevalent at the time you know the, the nature of of the brain and the mind was very much a, you know black box question and so um so wallace initially um you know, was was sort of 
fully you know on board with a with a naturalistic explanation for humans including our our minds and and in fact um in 1864 so just a couple of years after returning home from southeast asia he published a really important paper he read it before the anthropological society and it was a, a really a truly original hypothesis and and it was an attempt to basically at, well, at the same time, he could kind of explain patterns of human um, so-called racial diversity and deeper evolutionary history um, by positing that natural selection acted upon human progenitors. So cl clearly, there was no question that we are, um, you know, closely related to the to the great apes, right? We are primates, and um, so you have this divergence from that lineage. And um, so you have a physical change, but then at some point he speculated that selection is operating on body and mind, but that at some point, for reasons that may not be fully understandable, um, qualities of mind began to take center stage, that selection began to act more and more on mind and less and less on body that that properties of mind became all important in human biology and for him and others of his time it kind of went hand in hand with a whole suite of characteristics about our cognitive capacity or our you know our personalities our, our ability to uh, for abstract reasoning our um you know our um you know, manual dexterity, um, the capacity for language, you know, and the anatomical changes that have to accompany these things, you know. So he's imagining that you suddenly hit an inflection point and selection begins to operate on mind and the body kind of is in a freeze frame. We sort of stop evolving in a way physically, which is why we're sort of like the naked ape, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, with this bulbous head, you know, and we're, uh, you know, not a whole lot of hair and all of that. <clears throat> and then, um, but the mind, you know, selection is is honing, you know, can kind of imagine this sociocultural evolution, maybe is the way to think about it. Mm. <clears throat> and that humans are social animals and that this becomes like the most important aspect of our of our evolution and the evolution of culture and society and language and all of these things. So that was his early model that was really so original that Darwin himself actually incorporated it into his famous book, The Descent of Man. <laughs> you know, so, so Darwin saw the value of this. He wrote to Wallace and said, wow, this idea is really new to me. Like, I've never heard of such a thing, you know, deeply impressed, right? But, but Wallace, again, he's always um, speculating about the nature of mind. and. Um, he also, beginning about the mid-1860s, he becomes enamored with this um, movement called spiritualism. Mm. And um, there's lots of speculation how this happens. We know that his sister, Fanny, is a is a really into it, you know, that might be, have been one entree. And, um, you know, so you can kind of imagine, again, you know, hard to speculate about the psychology, but, you know, could it be that the prospects of the the, um, the enigmatic aspects of, of properties of mind, the prospects of being able to um, somehow um, connect with people that are departed, that maybe he, he sort of thought about this in a very 
in an almost materialistic way, you know, that, that if, if you're a spiritualist and there's a kind of spirit world, the closest analogy I can think of is that it's sort of like a parallel universe where whatever qualities of mind we have um, continue to live on even after our physical bodies, right, have, 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 have decayed, let's say. So can we communicate with those entities? And, you know, he thinks about this in a very practical way. You know, he he makes an analogy, for example, you know, that maybe it just takes the right technology. You know, that <clears throat> centuries ago, if um if if someone had told you, you know, that in this little, you know, drop of water, it's teeming with little organisms swimming around, right? Then that person might be sort of denounced as as um, insane, you know. Right. Maybe um, you know, maybe burned at the stake as some kind of bizarre, you know, demonic, you know, possessed individual, you know. But then, you know, with the right technology, you know, you've got a microscope invented. Um, wow, it opens up this whole new world, right? Thanks to the technology, and so something that would have been thought utterly um, impossible or maybe insane centuries ago we now as a matter of course anybody can take a drop of pond water from their you know yard and look at it under a microscope and behold the protozoa you know and other things and so he sort of uses that as an analogy to say you know well maybe there is this other world we and we can't detect it and and if it did exist that wouldn't contravene the laws of nature maybe we maybe the limitation is our own perception maybe we we just don't we don't fully understand the universe in its complexity. And, you know, that's a reasonable argument. You know, that's a perfectly reasonable argument. I mean, you know, think about how, um, you know, radio waves are coursing through us, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. Wholly unknown until the right technology was, you know, invented, right? Um, so there, there are aspects to the universe that we were ignorant of until we had the right technology, you know? But that that kind of leads him, it feeds into this iconoclastic personality. He wanted the scientific community, right, his colleagues, Darwin, Huxley, you know, take this seriously. How can we test this, you know? And they're all like, this is nuts. <laughs> like, you're, you know, they want no part of this because, you know, it's kind of tied up with seances and mediums and it's like, seems like quackery. And a lot of these mediums seem like um, all they're, they're just duping people, you know, soaking them for money, and um, and so. But Wallace, it's maybe it's it's characteristic maybe of his personality, and this is maybe where he really has a blind spot, right? Where he's a kind of guy that he digs in his heels. He's like, well, you guys are not taking this seriously. How do you know? And then you know, like some medium will be exposed as a fraud. And then they'll say, you know, Darwin and others will say, see, like these people are just, you know, they're charlatans, you know? And then he'll say, well, yeah, you know, there are some bad apples, but it doesn't mean that all of them are like that, right? There's, you know, there may be some perfectly honest mediums and they really can communicate with this other world. You know, how do you know, you know? And and so it kind of goes like that. He He kind of digs himself in, and then he becomes, frankly, a bit oblivious or, or or impervious to what maybe you and I and certainly Darwin and Huxley and others would have taken as 
rigorous scientific arguments why you know this is probably you know quackery or something you know he you know he wouldn't he wouldn't buy that and so um that leads him down this path of then saying if i'm going to be logical about natural selection then let's apply the logic rigorously and if you apply it rigorously then according to you know his friend darwin and others um gradual stepwise evolution is the way things change but in order to do so right because selection only acts in the here and now every step along the way of an evolutionary progression must itself be useful to its possessor right so so natural selection and evolution doesn't have foresight it doesn't like like jump to like you know anticipating oh in 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 a millennium we're going to need this trait let's evolve it now you know this adaptation whatever obviously doesn't work that way right so so wallace says this comes back to the way he viewed indigenous peoples right if they are the same as me and you they're fully human they have every ability we have um every ability cognitively um they have their own person you know personalities vary just like they do in in european society people are people and that means that if you have people like the dyaks of borneo let's say that have have existed in 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 a hunter gatherer state for since time immemorial and yet those same people have the ability if taught to you know perform integral calculus and compose symphonies and you know do anything anything you can imagine any european can do um with their brain these people can do too but if they have that ability that has never in all of those millennia had the opportunity to be manifested and useful this is where his eurocentrism comes in right as if like the only real complexity of thought is connected with these real like you know um remarkable achievements of european science and art and invention you know um of like you know higher mathematics and you know those sorts of things so if they if they can do these things but their ancestors and they never had occasion to use these abilities how could those abilities have evolved by gradual stepwise evolution so then it's a one step away from saying couldn't and it dovetails with the spiritualism that maybe there's something else going on here that that somehow this process is being helped along and these benevolent spirits you know these these individuals that exist in this parallel world are are in fact um orchestrating this or or guiding this this process and and I'll, the final point I'll make is that I think it's interesting Xavier that it dovetails too with Wallace's very uh, sort of deeply held conviction of of uh, this sense of justice, yeah. and um, and this this kind of almost utopian view of social improvement, progress, mm-hmm. we are improving, mm-hmm. um, and we must we must you know always campaign for improvement individually, you know, as a species, societally, politically. Um, so he then begins to feel that. Yeah, maybe this um, th- these guiding spirits are helping us become our better selves. You know that that they're leading us to this utopia, and 
it's fair to say that he didn't just come to that suddenly later because he left an important clue in the very last paragraph of that original 1864 paper on the evolution of, of humans. The last paragraph is this amazing utopian vision, imagining that we will evolve into a kind of state where, um, like eternal bliss, where everyone will, you know, be able to fully realize their potential. There'll be no need for law enforcement because everyone will just do what's right, you know, <laughs> it goes on and on and on, you know. So that's kind of a long answer to your your question. It, it's it's rather complicated, but I can see the trajectory I think that Wallace took. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I I, I it, it it doesn't feel out of the blue, but it is. I mean, it, it, it's a little fantastical in some ways. There's one one angle of it, but you, it's not illogical. I would say it's just a little. Yeah, there is a logic different. to it. It's it's yeah. different. Um, and and yeah, and, and one of the the the, the you know, last questions that, that I was going to ask was about his uh, humanism, social justice. I mean, as you as you said, this didn't just happen when he was older and thinking about life. I mean, it was a through line throughout his life, pretty consistent. Yeah. But you claim that you know he was pretty non-racist, pro-woman. Uh, I, I I enjoyed the bit about you know anti-vax, but but <laughs> but why? And at the time, it made it made sense. I mean, just right, talk right. about his humanitarian lens on being, I mean, pretty forward-thinking. Uh, on many of these things about things like race and gender, things that many people at the time weren't even thinking about, or very few people were, and definitely not popular at the time. And I mean, mm. really could, could, and again, that's not to say he didn't have blind spots or he's like some like, you know, saint right, or something. Right. That's important to bear in mind too. Yeah. But, but it is interesting when you do, when you read a lot of uh, history about people in the past and there's always like oh yikes they they were pretty mm -hmm. kind of terrible or you know oh, they had some pretty terrible beliefs or you know they weren't nice to so and so or these groups of people it stands out when someone genuinely mm -hmm. for the most part is and tries to live that way in a time where that wasn't the norm it's nice to 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 recognize that and say yeah there's some exceptions yeah, yeah. There, especially for someone as important as he was maybe just i guess talk about little bit more about those aspects of it um and if you want to clarify the anti-vax piece well. <laughs> right, you said in the book and it made sense <laughs> but it yeah, sounds like it was yeah. more about like bodily autonomy and things like that so, right right i mean it, it kind of relates back to social justice i mean you know in really um dignity you know individual rights self-determination you know yeah. These these are con constant like longstanding themes with Wallace's you know um, thought you know and and when it came to his um, stance on on vaccination for smallpox, he felt the government was being you know excessively coercive. It is certainly true you know, by, by making this mandatory, yeah. but but compounding that was was the science at the time. You know, fr from the the benefit of the twenty first century, we can say, of course, you know, you know vaccination can can have its ills at times right but all things considered it, it's a tremendously you know um, beneficial thing right the science was in its infancy on this you know in the in the 18th into the 19th century and um and and he could reasonably say you know how are you analyzing your data 
Um, what what is the you know like the kinds of like controlled scientific studies that became so like honed in the 20th century and, and are the you know the the bedrock of, of of much of modern science today right that it was sort of in a state of flux in those days so the, the I guess the you know the the short answer for the question about his anti-vax stance was um you know individual dignity and self-determination um at a time when he wasn't fully convinced that it really was as beneficial as um as the medical profession was was claiming and by the way it wasn't the first time that he took issue with the the medical profession actually no maybe that was the first time the second time would have been over eugenics Mm-hmm. Right where he really pushed back against um, against uh, eugenics, and he denounced um, the kind of what he called the kind of um, like medical priesthood, making these pronouncements about people. And then once again, it had to do with um, self determination, with justice, with uh, with individual dignity. You know, he's he's pushing back. Anytime you have a, a situation, he thought he felt with with. Um, with with a you know, like government as a kind of powerful you know institution um coercively you know trying to get you know people to do certain things um he really you know he chafed at that you know big big time you know mm-hmm. um so but but yeah I, I do find it fascinating how many strands of his um kind of i call it broadly social justice interests kind of come together um, later in life, not to the exclusion of his science, because he's still publishing amazing science, you know, um, practically all the way through. I mean, his last, like, landmark, let's see, would it be this last landmark scientific book might be um, Island Life, which is really like a founding document of modern island biogeography, you know, that was 1880. Um, but, you know, he he thinks about, um, yeah, he thinks... He, you mentioned earlier, he, you know, sure, we have to acknowledge there were blind spots. And I don't want to paint Wallace as like, you know, just, yeah. you know, this paragon of like right. you know, completely, you know, rejecting, you know, and free of these biases. He had certain biases, sure. a, certain, a certain Eurocentrism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he did champion women's rights and, and the women's um, uh, the vote for, for women mm-hmm. um, earlier. You know, maybe he could have done more when he kind of caved on, you know, issues about whether like women should be admitted to certain scientific societies, you know, which he disagreed with. But then he kind of like went along with, you know, what was being decided by, you know, by others. And you can kind of like from a modern perspective, you might say, you know, you you should have pushed back more, you know, (laughs) against that. But um but really, I think you're right that at a time in a place when, you know, so many were everything was black and white and just crystal clear that there were sort of inherent superiority of certain people over other people. And, um, and you know, whether that was people of color, whether it was women, um, you know, and, and and denigrating them in various ways, uh, that he stands out as one who absolutely did not, you know, embrace that that narrative. And, um, and as you mentioned earlier, he's someone who really, you know, he doesn't just kind of, um, you know, talk the talk, he walks the walk, you know, he, you know, John Stuart Mill, the philosopher invited him to be like the founding president of the land nationalization society. He took that very seriously every year, faithfully, he gave 
a lengthy presidential address. He's campaigning for um, for land reform. Now you can imagine in um, you know in in Britain at this time the idea of nationalizing land and and redistributing land and you know this went over like a lead balloon with the establishment. You know and his scientific friends are rolling their eyes and they're like, oh, it's like another distraction with Wallace, you know, and, you know, why doesn't he just stick to his science, you know? And, um, but he really believes in these things, you know, um, labor reform. He, he's very much an Owenite socialist. And then in the late 1880s, he out and out declares himself. He says, I am a socialist. I'm a thorough socialist. You know, he really believes that, you know, he, he again, it's a utopian streak, maybe yeah. he, He's thinking about societal improvement. We must campaign to improve the lot of the downtrodden in society, right? Mm-hmm. Give voice to the to the voiceless. Um, he's all about that. Um, s- several of his later books, he writes books, like he published one called Land Nationalization. There's another one called... Um, um, bad times, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a critique of the whole, basically what we would call the kind of, um, you know, military industrial congressional complex, right? He, there's a version of that going on in Britain at the time. And, and he's decrying that, that system. Um, and, uh, another one, um, you know, he writes on spiritualism, of course, there, there's some of that. And you see a lot of his optimism kind of coming out in, in some of uh, some of those books as he looks to the to the future. Um, um, so it's it's interesting. What Another one called the revolt of democracy, you know, you know, very, very, you know, active um, walking the walk as well as as, as yeah. talking the talk. Um you know, his ideas, I think that modern thinkers would not say that he came up with like truly novel and insightful solutions to these various problems. But it's certainly true that he lent the weight of his name, his authority, because he was recognized. I mean, he was quite famous by the end of his life. He was recognized as one of the great elder statesmen of science. And by lending his authority to some of these movements, like women's suffrage, which he really believed would would lead to societal improvement if we could just let women have the vote. Um, you know, we, you know, you can you can really see um he was ahead of his time in many ways, you know, um, that many of the of the causes that he threw himself into, not all of them, but many of them, they did become realized, you know, the eight hour workday and, you know, all kinds of labor reform, you know, um, women's suffrage. And, you know, certainly we, for all of the problems that we maybe even still face today, it's a more just society in so yeah. many ways than, than they lived in at, at, at that time. Mm-hmm. And you can really see many of those elements of things that Wallace was was um, campaigning for as having been, you know, realized, come to fruition later. And I don't want to say that he's responsible, but he played a role. You know, he yeah. lent yeah. the weight of his, of his voice, you know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I fully agree. And I mean, that's just one of the nice things that you really highlight. I mean, in the book, you could have just kept it on the science or his travels, but it was really nice to get that angle as well, because I think it's, it's an important part of the, of, of his story and, and just within science at the time. So the final question here is, is what is the, what's the legacy of, of Wallace and how can we make sure we don't forget his tremendous place uh, in mm. our history of, of science uh, or philosophy of science in some ways? 
Um, obviously, we've been talking some about the social issues, but just in general, overall, both on the on the science side, maybe on the more personal side, uh, mm-hmm. he is a little bit forgotten, or or maybe better, um, sometimes in the shadow of Darwin. And so, mm-hmm. how do we make sure we have an accurate understanding of his legacy and and we don't forget him? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a very good, uh, an apt final final question, really. To, thinking about his his legacy and um you know i i, I think i i am not one of those who um who would ever and there are some like this out there who would seek to tear down darwin to raise up wallace's profile and so while darwin is is rightly honored and and darwin like wallace will never be kind of an equal light you know i mean um for a number of reasons that we we can't get into now, you know, Darwin, the name is a household name. His name for good or ill has been attached to a number of things, including social Darwinism, right? Although Darwin himself would have, you know, been appalled. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, to answer your question, though, so what, so what can we do? I'm, I'm not. I'm not sort of on the the illusion that you know you know Wallace will be up there you know shining in the firmament right next to, to to Darwin, but we can do right by the guy right now. 2013 saw the the centennial of Wallace's death. There had been a lot of very good Wallace scholarship, of course, in the 20th century, um, but even more Darwin scholarship and the, the so called. Um, Darwin industry, of which I've been kind of a part of. I mean, the guy's amazing, um, you know. But it did tend to sort of focus on Darwin's um, achievements and accomplishments. And Wallace, again, partly because of his very own doing, right? Very much kind of a a, a lesser light. But in 2013, that saw a wave of new scholarship, mm. and I really feel like that. There has been momentum that that has continued now, 10 years later, because he lived to the age of 90. Um, we were celebrating the bicentennial of his birth. And, um, you know, I, I think that now more than ever, maybe his his name is out there. Um, what it will take over time is for, you know, a lot of it starts with um, biology education, mm. you know, um, you know, certainly a sort of a high school, you know, secondary school level, but then especially at the at the college level. And and in over time, I'm expecting that we will see instead of the merest, you know, footnote of, you know, if he's mentioned at all, you know, that Alpha Russell Wallace might, you know, be accorded his due of, you know, of at least, you know, a, a few paragraphs to kind of outline, you know, the remarkable achievements that he made independent of his friend and colleague, Charles Darwin. And um, that's really where where it starts in terms of getting more of the, you know, just educationally, um, not just in the scientific community, but but others, just a, a, aware that this remarkable individual um, w- w- is out there and needs to be given, you know, um, given his, his due. Um, so I think that we're, you know, I like to think that my my book is written as a sort of homage to to Wallace. Um, I, I want to, I, I would like um, more people, uh, a, a broad readership, curious about maybe the history of ideas and those sorts of things, maybe especially history of science and evolution, to better appreciate, you know, this this really utterly fascinating, multifaceted guy. And so this is offered as a kind of my my modest 
contribution to that, but certainly far from the only contribution. There, there's a really nice growing body mm. of wonderful um, scholarship, and there will be more. Mm. There will mm. be more. So I think that we're seeing that momentum carry. Mm. Yeah, no, that's 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 wonderfully said. Uh, the book is called Radical by Nature, The Revolutionary Life of Alfred Russell Wallace. Uh, it's through Princeton University Press, and um, it is available everywhere now where you can buy uh, all good books. Uh, where is the best place to uh, find yourself, whether that's online or email or um, through school website? What's the best place to find you and get at you? Uh, if, uh, if uh, Sure, yeah. Well, I, I do have a, a website, so, you know, jamestcosta.com, where um, I provide um, links to um you know, independent bookstores, the university presses that I've been, um, and other presses that I've been, you know, privileged to, to work with, nice. um, other resources and, and other information. Um, certainly, it's easy to find me um, via email through my um, university, nice. you know, cost at wcu.edu. Um, and of course, you know, inquiries are, are always welcome, but, but a quick way to kind of see um, some of my work and um, this book and other books and where uh, they might be obtained would, would be in my website. Excellent. Well, I'll post the links. Uh, Jim, this was so much, so much fun. I, uh, I really, really love this stuff. I, 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 again, like I said, enjoyed your book and it's uh, such a privilege to get to talk with you about it for a couple hours. I uh, appreciate your time and being so generous. And um, I'm uh, really, really pleased that we uh, got to get into all of the details about it. So, so big thanks. Well, thanks, thanks to you, Xavier. I, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of, of the interest. I, I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Some great questions, so much to discuss. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Uh, thank you.